Dissonance Media and the Other Stories presents Step into the abyss of After the Gloaming, a gothic fiction podcast that delves into the depths of human emotion. Unyielding love, revenge, internal struggles, and restless souls await you in nine haunting episodes where dread, fear, and rare glimpses of eerie happiness linger. Dare to listen on your favourite podcatcher? After the gloaming beckons, search now, but beware, innocence will be left behind. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. These aren't the stories your mother told you. No, these are the other stories. <laughs> <laughs> Dindins. Written by Luke Condor. Narrated by Josh Curran. Funny how something as little as a smell can take you back ten years. A fusty mix of mildewed clothing and the remains of meat cooked out in the open air had David McIntosh travelling back in time. The last time he smelled that distinct aroma, it stepped over the fence and into the traveller's campsite and he'd seen what he wasn't supposed to see. He'd stolen a sight. But it was fair, because they'd stolen first. A motorbike from his dad's garage. A Suzuki Bandit 600. It was a thing of beauty. A painted red monster that roared as it galloped off the driveway and through the country lanes. It was the fucking Jippers! His dad had screamed the morning after. David had just stepped outside in his school uniform with the lunch he'd packed himself and found the chain lock on the floor, the one they had used to secure the garage door overnight, now with a snapped link where someone had cut it away. Those fucking pikey bastards! Yes, it was those monsters over in the bathgrounds. The Travellers. The Pavi. The Roma. 
the gypsies. They'd stolen it. In retrospect, it probably wasn't their fault that David's father reacted in the way he did. It wasn't their fault he scooped David up and threw him back into the house so hard he slammed the back of his head into the cupboard. It wasn't likely their doings that caused his father to whip off his belt and slam it so hard onto David's back that he had to avoid P.E. for the next month because he didn't want people asking about the purple and red streaks decorating his body. He couldn't blame them for that, but he could blame them for the bike, the root cause, the incendiary. So he snuck out of his father's house, a half hour away from the Peafield Council Estates, and made his way to the campsite. He'd waited for the cover of night before venturing into the camp. Lit from only the moonlight above, he saw filth and rot. He saw tissue papers and dirty linens strewn across the floor, flattened grass and a children's plastic tricycle, and the Formica caravans, not parked in any sort of order, but in a chaotic jumble all around, all with their doors closed, most with lights on inside, and the sounds of their voices, in accents he could never quite understand, murmuring through the fine walls. And he smelled the mould, and the piss, and shit, and the cooked meats as he walked around the smouldering ash of gone-out campfires, searching for where they kept their stolen goods. If he could find the bike, David had thought, then he'd be able to fix it all. But after a half hour of scouting through the campsite, he'd found nothing more than two children's bikes, one with the stabilisers still fixed to the back wheel, and another lone wheel. Too bulky for a motorbike. It looked like a spare wheel for a car. It was only as he was about to go home did he see the caravan nearest the centre of the camp with its door lay open. An open mouth, void and black. Probably empty, David thought as he stepped towards it, feeling the hair on his neck stand on end like hackles of a dog, fear brimming up as he stepped closer to the pitch-black entrance. Inside, it smelled of wet dog and all of him. Every fibre was screaming for him to turn and leave. Don't go in there! An inner voice was telling him. Don't you fucking go in there! But David did. He stepped inside and saw little at first. It was much too dark. But as his eyes adjusted, he saw the kitchen counter and then the blacked-out windows. It took him a second longer before he saw something over in the kitchen sink, in a pool of murky brown water. David stepped closer to it and saw the face. A baby doll's face, he thought at first, until he reached out and pressed his finger against the exposed head. It was much too cold, too soft to be a doll. The thing bobbed against David's touch in the water and he took a step back, still reconciling what he was seeing with what he thought could be real. A voice from his left in the shadows, a child's voice, but salty and hoarse. David turned to the gloom and squinted. The voice asked, What? 
and then the outline of the shape came into view. It was child-sized, but rough, with soft points above its head. The voice grew louder now, with added gravel, a child's voice aging rapidly, devolving into more of a feral bark. And then the child jumped forward, its face suddenly peering out of the gloom with yellow eyes and a blackened nose. A chain rattled around his neck, and it screamed, no, it growled, David turned and ran, leaving the dead baby in the kitchen sink, running through the caravan park, seeing the lights click on and silhouettes of pikeys appearing in the windows. He left the sounds of opening doors and shouting travellers behind him as he ran through the fields, through the woods, and found his way back to his house, crying and sweating, unable to sleep doing his best to pretend. For the next ten years, he did his best. That the night before was little more than a bad dream. Nobody questioned him, because he gave them no reason to. Nobody questioned him, because he wouldn't allow them. It was a dream. Nothing more, nothing less. A dream. And that was that. So then, he wondered, why was he back, all these years later? It definitely wasn't for his dad's Suzuki Bandit 600. If they had stolen it, it was long gone now. It would have been sold for cash or reinvested into a bookies or an off-license. It was a dream. Of course it was, but there was still that seed of doubt in David's mind. The one that had taken root and grown up and matured along with him. That nagging feeling that there was something off something murderous about these travellers, and that by keeping quiet, he was as guilty as them. But he couldn't tell anyone. No way. Not now. It had been too long to run to the police and tell them what he saw. Too long to suddenly admit that he saw a feral girl locked up in chains and innocent meat in the sink. So no, he had to do this on his own. To prove to himself that what he saw wasn't his imagination and wasn't the flights of fancy of a young boy looking for supernatural horror to take him away from the horrors at home. No, he had to prove it to himself that what he saw that night was real. And when he'd driven past the week before and saw that they'd returned to the bath grounds, he knew it might be his only chance, for the travel folk were fleeting and might have been gone before the week was through. A quick check of the sky, and he saw the moon, full and proud, its white light washing the grassy fields in grey. David climbed over the fence, the same beaten fence from a decade before, and made his way through the campsite. This time, he wasn't unarmed though. In his hand, he clutched a hatchet, feeling the weight of it and finding security. There were fewer caravans this time, only eight or so. They were still just as messy as before. The same piss and shit and linen and motor parts lay in the gaps between them, all with their lights completely out, but quieter this time, as if most were empty. A ghost town for the night. David scanned all of them, searching feverishly for any discernible mark that might trigger his memories. He stepped to the first caravan and looked through a gap between the closed blinds. 
There was little of nothing inside. A dilapidated flat littered with empty beer cans turned ashtrays and an odd-looking length of knotted rope on the side chewed to hell. David clutched the hatchet tighter in his hand, the frustration winding him inwards like a coil, doubt creeping in. Maybe he'd been wrong. Maybe he was deluded. But then he turned, and a sight caught him stupid and open-mouthed. A girl stood there in the doorway of the caravan opposite, the door open, her form barely visible in the gloom. It was impossible, David thought. She looked exactly the same age as before. Are you okay? He said, quiet at first, but louder the second time. Hey, are you okay? The girl stepped backwards and into the darkness. Hey! David ran over now and climbed into the darkness. He blinked and forced his eyes to see through the shadows, to make sense of the shapes around him. He reached into his jeans pocket and pulled out his phone, using the light from its display as a torch. Firstly, he looked to the kitchen sink. It was empty and clean, but there was the familiar rattle of chains in the far corner. David pointed his phone to them and revealed not one, but eight eyes reflecting like cats. No, this doesn't... No... David had to stop himself from crying at what he saw. This was worse, much worse. The last time he'd found only the one child locked away in chains. This time, he saw so much more movement in the dark. Limbs writhing and climbing. Babies locked away in a large dog crate. Chains around their necks. Each of them hairy and crude, with dark noses and furry tufts coming up from their ears. David stepped to the crate and looked inside. He looked down to his hatchet and considered his options. I could save them, he thought as he watched the nearest reach a soft, gentle pink hand to the cage door. I could take them away from this place, rehabilitate them. What if they're too far gone? What then? He gripped the hatchet tightly and considered ending the horror with eight simple chops, as easy as a woodsman chopping fire. Thunk. Thunk. The... Yeah, smell familiar. A voice from behind. It spoke in that familiar cocktail of accents. David spun around and dropped to the floor. He looked up to see a woman step into the white moonlight in the open doorway. She was tall and violent. Hair long and matted, and tumbling down over her naked chest. In the white, David could just make out the lines of scarring and scratching that marked her skin. Barely an inch in any direction was unmarked. Have we met before, you and I? Who... who are you? I am many things, the woman said, as she stretched her arms to the roof and clicked her back, bathing in the moonlight as if she were greeting a morning sunshine. Daughter, sister, mother. David careened over his shoulder to see the babies were changing, each of them shuddering like cold, wet dogs as the moonlight caught them. Harsh whines escaped their mouths as their faces pushed forward and rearranged, creaking like old doorways. 
the families out looking for food already. Looks like we'll have leftovers. Now the woman shook too, her hands still pressed against the ceiling as her whole body shuddered and grew. She didn't seem to be in pain though. In fact, it was the opposite. It was like she was riding a drug high, enjoying each and every pop and click of her form. By the time she was done, her shoulders pressed up against the ceiling. David climbed to his feet and raised the hatchet. Stay the fuck back, you fucking parky! His dad's words, his dad's prejudice, his mouth. It was the kind of shout that would terrify him as a child, but did nothing to this beast before him. And now the puppies behind him, because vicious little puppies they now were, yapped and snapped at the cage, desperate to nip at David's back. Yes, the woman growled. Yes, Melita, it's time for dindins. No, it's fucking not, David said as he swiped the hatchet down into the woman's shoulder. It caught against her thick hide and she yelped in reply and lashed her hand across David's face. The three fingers tore into him like his face were a rotting peach, pulling skin and flesh away with ease. The force of it was enough to throw him through the door and out onto the wrecked grass. Hotness. That's what he felt. Horrible, peppering heat rising all around his face and spilling out. His hands shook as he dared himself to touch the giant gouges in his face. He tried to cry and scream, but couldn't manage more than a wet gargle as the woman, no, the wolf, stepped outside and dropped the hatchet to the floor. She lifted him up by his foot and dragged him back inside. He clawed at the grass and mud, but it was nothing against her brute strength. Funny thing, though, he thought, as he felt his body was lifted up and back into the darkness of the caravan. Just up, hidden away by the side of one of the caravans, was something he recognised. He recognised it quite well. Dindins, puppies, dindins. His face was thrown to the far side of the caravan. He barely registered much of anything now, as delirium and shock took him. An odd little laugh escaped him as the dog crate was opened, and the puppies erupted out and began to bite and tear and gnash. He giggled and screamed for as long as he could. The red paint, a little chipped and dirty, but he'd seen the logo on the side and had recognised it. Suzuki Bandit 600. Funny thing indeed, he thought as a wet mouth found his remaining eye and scooped it out. Not funny, ha-ha, but funny in a way. In a way. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Other Stories. Din Din's was written by Luke Condor, narrated by Josh Curran, edited by Carl Hughes, with music by Mayu and Tom Robson. 
time is running out. We're giving away five signed copies of The Other Stories Volumes 10 to 12 collection. So if you want to be in with a chance to win, head over to www.hawkandcleaver.com forward slash competition. Answer the questions there and leave your contact email address. As always, a massive thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com forward slash hawkandcleaver. You guys help keep the lights on, keep us smiling and producing new episodes. And if you're thinking about joining the party, head over to patreon.com forward slash hawkandcleaver and pledge from as little as one pound. Until next time.